Loving God, speak to us by your spirit, through your word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I remember my first car. Um, I'm embarrassed to describe it to you, but I guess first cars are often like that. It was a light blue Nissan pickup truck, small pickup truck. And if that's not bad enough, there were two features of this truck that made it an object of great scorn. Number one, it had a diesel engine. This was long before automakers became skilled at making diesel engines for smaller vehicles. And number two, it had a camper on the back of it that was slanted toward the cab from the back of the truck. Um, Yeah, I'm just thinking about it right now, just (laughs) weeping internally. So here's a small truck, this camper on top, and you could hear me coming from miles and miles away. My poor wife and I dated in that bucket of bolts. Clearly, she loves me very, very much. The longer I owned that truck, the more I realized that the engine had fatal flaws. A friend of mine was a mechanic, and uh, he would usually run when I would drive up to his shop. Uh, Strange for a mechanic, right? Usually they're excited about that. He did his best to keep this truck running, uh, though he had to put together some of the strangest contraptions to do it, most of which I think were legal. I remember washing my truck regularly, cleaning the inside, adding car fresheners, but there was just no hiding the fact that I was in a diesel truck with a goofy camper that would continually break down. No amount of sanitization fixed the inside of that truck. It needed to die. I was nearly resigned to just giving up and letting it die, but as a last effort, I let my dad take it Uh, with the hope of selling it. I was in college at the time. My faith was small, but I did pray and ask God to work a miracle and get rid of that truck so that I could buy something else. Dad was driving it back to the city that he lived in nine hours away from where I was, and he stopped for fuel, for diesel fuel, on the way. And while he was there, a group of guys walked up to him and asked him if he would be interested in selling it. There was no for sale sign on the truck. He said yes. He gave him an outrageous price. They pulled out cash, paid for it. He signed the title over to them on the spot. He took a bus and rode home to Memphis, Tennessee. I don't know what the point of that is. I just had to tell you that. This is a great story. When I think about that truck... I think about how there was no masking its problems. It needed to die. The flaws were too deep. The problems too many. There wasn't a mechanic in the world that was going to solve that. It needed a complete overhaul. 2 Samuel 13 to 20 is the inside story on David and his family. Underneath the hood of Israel's imposing king is a faltering engine that's breaking down. And it reaches a point where internal family problems turn into national crises. David's sin with Bathsheba is playing out in devastating ways. Nathan the prophet, David's spiritual director, promised that the sword 
would not leave his house as a result of his sin. And it turns out he was right. Amnon, David's firstborn son, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and about two years later, Tamar's brother Absalom exacted revenge, murdering Amnon. Absalom fled from his father and hid for three years. A daughter raped by a family member, a son dead, another in exile, trying his best to overthrow his father, Absalom. Which, if he had been successful, would inevitably have led to patricide. He would have executed his father, David. He would have had to. All this after losing the baby that was conceived as a result of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Do you think David regretted anything? I imagine it was hell. It was hell for him. The last verse of chapter 13, while difficult to translate, seems to indicate that in spite of Absalom's sin, David longed to see him, to make everything okay with a depth of love that was difficult to express. And yet life was shattered for David. Here was a father whose heart truly did beat for God, but he had let his sexual drive get the best of him. And if that wasn't bad enough, And perhaps out of a sense of guilt, he let his children do as they pleased. I mean, who am I to correct them? Look what I did with Bathsheba. He may very well have thought. Whatever the reason, David was in his hell. And he's not just enduring it in the privacy of his royal chambers. He's dragging an entire nation into it with him. The effects of his sin are legion. And that's just the way sin is, right? This is the man who was Israel's savior, little s. This was the guy who came in to rescue the nation from the folly of Saul. He was the man God handpicked to be his anointed one, his Messiah, little m. The Israelite hero, dressed for mourning, crosses the water in the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem. And goes to a grove of olive trees on the mountain overlooking the city. From there, he sends the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's presence with his people, back to Jerusalem. And he admits the possibility that God may be finished with him. It may be time for God's spirit to go to someone else. His extended family, his people have abandoned him. And interestingly, the ones named who stay in his faithful company are Gentiles, Philistines, even worse. In the middle of his hell, his most faithful companions are Philistines. People who, by law, have no right to be with God's anointed one. Ittai is a Gittite. Do you know who a Gittite is? A Gittite is from Gath. Who else was from Gath? Goliath, the archenemy. And Ittai's expression of love and devotion to David can only be compared to Ruth's for Naomi. It even sounded the same wherever you go. I will go. In the most desperate of circumstances, God's gift 
to David is a blood relative of Goliath. <laughs> you can't make this up. When things get really messy in your life, even if you're the cause or of some or all of that mess, we quickly discover who our real friends are, don't we? Nevertheless, here's David with the undying love of Ittai outside of Jerusalem, shamed and abandoned by everyone else, wondering if even God has abandoned him. I imagine you felt that way. And maybe you do today. What could this story, this strange ancient story, mean for us today? Don't commit adultery? Yeah, okay, for sure. But there has to be more. The author's detail and the pace of the narrative is so slow, covering multiple chapters. He's clearly wanting us to hear something deeper than that. One of those deep questions that often comes to mind, and certainly comes to mind when you read the story of the life of David, is where is God when suffering comes? When your nephew's wife is passing away from cancer in her 40s, where is God? David wondered that. You're wondering that. I wonder that. The ark was sent back to Jerusalem. Is God really with me in this suffering? David's implication seems to be no. It doesn't seem to be. Some of you have endured what you consider nothing short of hell. Others of you haven't yet, but you will endure something like it. Either as a result of our own sin or just the world that's broken. And you may be given a cross to bear that's not your fault. Either way, in the middle of that suffering, we search our beliefs and wonder, has God forgotten us? Or worse, has he caused this calamity to fall on us? I think we do this because it's difficult to reconcile the Bible's message of hope, joy, love, and eternal life with the reality of suffering. What we've come to expect, for one reason or another, is that the Christian life should be free of pain, full of spiritual and even physical euphoria. Suffering or darkness, well, that's just a rude and inappropriate interruption into an otherwise comfortable life. Maybe we've seen it the wrong way. Maybe we've inadvertently conflated comfortable living with joy and hope and peace and all of those biblical terms that describe the kingdom of God, when it really is something else entirely. A comfortable life is just one dominated by ease, free from the strains of plague, those that plague the poor and sick and marginalized. Suffering is surely an intruder in this comfortable life. But for the followers of Jesus, suffering is not alien to unconditional love. It's not foreign to exuberant joy and even unflinching hope. 
Let me tease that out just a little bit for a moment. No matter who you are, religious, irreligious, Christian, Buddhist, whatever, everybody knows there's something wrong with the world. No matter how many times you wash and clean that truck, it's still an old diesel with lots of problems on the inside. We are broken. And this reality of brokenness is woven into the fabric of our lives. We sin, we experience the consequence of sin all around us, people die, injustice occurs, natural disasters come our way, we get sick, people fall out of love and quit. That is the world in which we live. The Bible, though, even in its most triumphant parts, affirms the reality of this pattern of hell coming before heaven, of suffering preceding bliss and peace. That is the way life is. And it's part of the way God is redeeming the world. Suffering first, glory next. Do you remember the story of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus? I've often been struck by what God told Ananias about Saul's future. Ananias was God's appointed mentor for him, for Saul, who later became Paul. And since Saul had been on the warpath against Christians, Ananias was just mildly troubled at the prospect of hanging out with this guy. And in response to this, the Lord says, yes, Ananias, do this anyway, because he's my chosen instrument. And get this, I have to show him how much he must suffer for my name. There you go. Welcome to the Christian life, Paul. That is not the sort of thing we say at the beginning of a new believers class. Now that you're all in, let me tell you, no. But it's the pattern we see in the scripture. Suffering, then glory. Hell, then heaven. Cross, then resurrection. And interestingly, this prophecy to Ananias about Paul didn't deter him from giving up everything for Jesus. Didn't deter Paul. When Paul was beaten, imprisoned unjustly, shipwrecked, he didn't throw up his hands and argue with God about his plight. He didn't call down fire on the Philippian jailer. He gave him the gospel. Joseph didn't give up on God when he languished in prison unjustly. Do you remember the dreams that he interpreted? Do you remember the baker went back? It was the baker, right? It wasn't the butler. Baker went back into the palace. The butler was executed. You remember he told the baker, hey, when you get, is it the other way? Butler? Baker, butler. Let's debate it right now. Let's figure it out. One of them went back to the palace and Joseph said, Hey, when you get back to the palace, don't forget me. The guy was like, yes, great. Guess who he forgot? For two more years. And Joseph did not lose faith. Job didn't lose faith and cursed God when he lost everything. David pressed forward in worship in spite of his children dying and losing his kingdom. Peter persisted in the face of imprisonment and the threat of, de of death. None of these saints assumed God had abandoned them simply because suffering came along. Certainly they were uncomfortable. 
St. Paul details that in 2 Corinthians. But they understood the order of things. For the one who follows Christ, the order is cross, then resurrection. I mean, this is a struggle for us. Because we have imbibed the American dream. You realize the Christian dream and the American dream are quite the same thing. The American dream is to be comfortable. We not only want freedom to live good lives, but we want to have comfortable lives. We want money for ourselves, a house, two cars, computers, a good education. But that's not the same as the Christian dream. Over... 50 years ago, the minister of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia was a guy by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. And he preached a sermon on CBS radio, national radio, if you can imagine this. And he was answering the hypothetical question, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? And here's what Barnhouse said. Barnhouse said that if he took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed... Pornography eliminated the beautiful street and the beautiful streets would be filled with people who smiled at each other. He said there would be no swearing. The children would say yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. And here's the key where Christ is not preached. Now, what he meant by that was that the evil one would wish to lull us to sleep, thinking that everyone And everything is okay. We're a moral, fiscally responsible society that rewards hard work with comfort and good food. And the American dream has morphed into the Christian life. A church that's obsessed with that dream is practical, relevant, successful, and well-liked. It treasures the same sort of stuff we hear from Oprah and Dr. Phil or a politician on the campaign trail. But that is not the Jesus way. Christ tends to muddy the waters for the church. He's earthy, messy. Because he knows our engines are fatally flawed. So he gets into all of that mess, under the hood, into the mess of humanity, and he works from within it. Christ is found in the places that make us largely uncomfortable. In chapter 16, as the narrative of David's escape from Jerusalem continues, he was greeted by members of the house of Saul, including a guy by the name of Shimei. Don't name your kids Shimei. Shimei cursed David, threw stones at him, threw dirt on him as he was leaving the city. What a humiliating scene that is. The Son of God, the man after God's own heart, is being pelted by rocks and having dirt thrown on him as he flees from his own son. Who among us, had we been observers that day, would not have thought that God had abandoned his servant David? Of course we would have. God's not there. Not in that mess. Not in that dirt. We think the proof of of God's presence is glory, success, the vim and vigor of the youth, the young and the ambitious. 
And yet, do you remember the accusation that Jesus regularly received during his ministry? This man hangs out with notorious sinners and even eats with them. Under the hood, in our mess, with us. We don't like that sort of God. We're a bit like the Pharisees. We prefer a sanitized God. One that looks clean and spotless, like Barnhouse described on the streets of Philadelphia, rather than a God who hangs out in the seedy bars of Portland on a Saturday night. That's what we would say to Jesus if he were here now. See, like David, one night, Jesus too crossed the brook in the Kidron Valley and entered a grove of olive trees. And there his enemy betrayed him and his disciples abandoned him. And on a mountain overlooking Jerusalem, Jesus, God's anointed one, the Son of God, faces the ultimate hell on a cross where he takes on the sin of the world. Your sin, my sin. Deserted by his own people and friends, he's left with Gentiles, Philistines, Roman soldiers who had no right to keep his company. And yet, surely this man is the Son of God, they said. And the Son of God goes through our hell. Where is God in our suffering? Well, he's right there. He's right there with us. He's crawled under the hood of our fatally flawed lives and breathed into us the breath of life so that now suffering and joy are not mortal enemies, but can live and even thrive together. Bart Ehrman is a professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He grew up in the Christian evangelical tradition, mainly of the charismatic persuasion. When Ehrman was young, his father became gravely ill, and he was told that if he prayed hard enough and had enough faith, then his father would be healed. His father died. Years later, he decided that a God who was apathetic to his suffering wasn't worthy of his worship. And now today, Ehrman writes extensively trying to debunk the Bible, the Christian faith, and especially those theologians who try to explain God and suffering. He scorns them all, God included, for being disconnected and distant from suffering. But Ehrman lost sight of a fundamental reality that we see in the Bible. Suffering precedes glory. We expect it. Cross precedes resurrection. Mind you, glory is coming. It has come in Christ, and it is coming. But the path to glory is on the road of humility, and sometimes suffering. This is the way. This is the way of Jesus. Of course God hasn't abandoned you. On the contrary, this is where he lives, the Via Dolorosa to the cross, which culminates in resurrection glory. Young people, 
You live in a city that, suffice it to say, does not value your Christian faith. You attend a church that meets in a small room, tucked away in the corner of the city, unnoticed by pretty much everyone. There's not much here that would make you say to your classmates, hey, you should come to my church. We meet in top of this building. You'll have to walk up a lot of steps. We chew bread and, and sip a little bit of wine. We have kids and everything going on. In fact, if they knew this is where you are on a Sunday morning, they'd look either a little confused or maybe you'd get a bit of ribbing. But that doesn't mean God's not with you. In fact, that's exactly where God is. He's with his children who follow him on the road out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and atop the hill where the enemy thinks they've won. That's where God is. And may we faithfully follow him there all of our days. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.